discipline's massive in the military and that's probably one of the biggest thing it takes you through that self-discipline to get up make your bed in the morning yeah. make sure you're well presented make sure your stuff's ironed um just making sure you do your job and i think that's something we carry well and that's why we we're having success with veterans in corporate world because of the discipline we bring with us that self-discipline and, and discipline around the, the work we do and then the courage and the courage maybe is something you really don't see. I think some of those other values you probably could see. We have got people who've got respect for others clearly. We've got people who've got selfless commitment that do things for other people. But the courage one is physical and moral. So moral to do the right thing. And there's lots of people that do the right thing. But maybe the physical one is the one that's so alien to everything else because, you know, would you really put yourself in physical danger for someone else? Don't know. But you are to do that quite a lot in the military. I. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Stories That Shape Us. I'm Samuel Agrede, I'm your podcast host, most people call me Sam. If it's your first time, welcome. We believe everyone has a story worth sharing and we believe storytelling is a great way of passing across our lessons, it's a great way of empowering each other, it's a great way of educating one another. On today's episode, we've got the How I Got Started series and I've got an exceptional man with me right here in the studio. <laughs> He's worked in the military, so it's safe to say I feel pretty safe here with him before he transitioned into becoming chief of staff in JP Morgan Asset Management. But in the military, he was something called the head of information superiority, which sounds very complex and, in, and interesting. So we'll unpack that in a bit. But Jimmy... Thank you so much for coming. How are you doing today? I'm good, Sam. No, thanks for having me. And yeah, really looking forward to having a chat. It'd be good. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So, Jimmy, as I mentioned to you, we'll start with rapid fire questions. Shoot. No pressure at no all. No pressure. <laughs> there we go. You have five seconds for each question. Okay. Question one. What's the most unusual food you've tried during your travels? And did you end up liking it? Wow. Five seconds. Probably frog legs in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I had that with palm wine. So that's not necessarily a food. Palm wine is very strong. I probably <laughs> won't go there again, but the frog legs are actually quite nice. They tasted the garlic. So yeah, frog legs and a little bit of palm wine. Frog legs. What's the closest thing perhaps our listeners would have tried that you think would taste similar to frog legs? So I'm going to be very cliche. Uh -huh. It tastes like chicken. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you can't think of anything else, it tastes like chicken. chicken. So. But yeah, I, I mean, if you're in France or or the Congo, uh -huh. yeah, frog legs, not okay. not terrible. Frog legs, yeah. So second question, what's your favourite book? So my favourite book is Legacy. Forget the author's name, but it's about the All Blacks, New Zealand rugby team. And it's 12 lessons of life, basically, taken from New Zealand culture and the Aboriginal culture applied into rugby. So they talk about things like, you look after the shirt, you pass the shirt on. So it's all about sweeping the sheds, doing the mm. stuff or doing all those little things. And it's been such an, that's been such an impactful book for me. I give it out to all my coaches at the rugby club. So every year we, we try and think, like, what's the, the focus for this year? Mm. And uh, was it last year? Yeah, as we grow, and I'm sure we get into it more anyway, but as we grow, I gave them all that book because it just has some really good life lessons and, you know, how you should react in life. So, yeah. Legacy. It's a great book. It's Legacy, great book. okay. And for folks listening, we'll link that in the show notes as well. So feel free to check that out. Question three. Share a hilarious rookie mistake from your early days in the military that still makes you laugh. Oh, God. Well, how long we've got? We've got longer than five <laughs> seconds. A rookie mistake. Well, so they always say never volunteer for anything in the military. They used to come out on the weekend and say, right, anyone want to go... 
underwater jet skiing and everyone would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, it just mean you was on guard duty because they had someone <laughs> didn't turn up on guard duty. So I got stung with those. Um, there was a few classics in the early days. Um, go and ask the guard room for a long stand, thinking you're going to get a long stand. Actually, it just made you stand there for a long time. Grinding sparks for the for the grinder. Um, you know, various, various things. So there's quite a few I could choose from, but um, yeah, volunteering for things you probably shouldn't volunteer for on a Friday afternoon, ended up in a guard duty. And do you find many sort of people entering the military make this mistake when they join? Everyone. Everyone I mean, it's like, a, it's like an ongoing joke. So, right, go to the guard room, go and ask for a long stand. And you, you walk, everyone walks past and sees a guy just stood there, you know, bolt up, right, going, what are you waiting for? Long stand? Yeah, right. So. I know one sort of like tells the new no. people coming. Like, no, no, definitely you, not. You have to express it's like yourself. a rite of passage, right? <laughs> okay, question four. Um, what's your favorite movie? That is a good question. Favorite movie? Mm-hmm. So, probably at the moment, Moneyball, that maybe gives you an insight. Love sport, like statistics and data. You know, that's a great film. They're, obviously, there's classics like The Godfather, Schindler's List, but I'll say Moneyball and I'll give you some context. One, because it's got about statistics and it's about sport, but two, is my daughter absolutely despises it. <laughs> and I always put every, you know, when you're flicking through Netflix, like, uh-huh. do you want to watch Moneyball? No, Dad, I don't want to watch. Are you sure you don't want to watch? No, I don't want to watch Moneyball. So, yeah, it's it's because it's become a bit of a running joke in the house as well. But it's a great film. Okay, you know, it's a classic. Moneyball, it is. Okay. Yeah. Um, question five, which is the final question. How is this going? By the way, is this too? Am I too easy? No, I Should like I it. Well, my no, demo? I don't want to say you're too easy because I don't know what I don't know what's written on that phone there. You're gonna hammer me, but no, it's, it's all good. It's all good. Okay. Question five. What are some common misperceptions or misassumptions people have about the military? that you've heard people tell you in the past. And you're like, oh no, we're not actually all like that. Like stereotypical stuff. Ah, well, so I think a lot of people think that the military is just always fighting. Everyone's in a helicopter, everyone's in a tank running around. I mean, there is lots of shouting. There's an awful lot of shouting, but (laughs) it's not all about war fighting. Mm. It's not all guns and bullets. You know, for my career, for example, most of it was IT. It was building networks, Mm. sending them out around the world so people could communicate. I'll, I'll give you a little story. So... When my son was six or seven, I think, fair, fair while ago, we went to the school, went to his new school, because you move around a lot mm. in the military. So we went to see his new school. And I was in my uniform, just came from work. And I went to school, and, you know, and the kids are like, wow, wow, you know, you know, what do you do? do you, are you in a helicopter? So that stereotype, <laughs> right? Do you, you know, do you, do, you, do you drive helicopters to fly tanks and all that sort of stuff? Um, and my son went, no, no, my dad makes telephones ring. And he was super accurate, but it really emasculated me, my seven-year-old son. You know, this big soldier and all, these kids were like, wow. And he was like, makes telephones ring. He wasn't wrong, but, you know, I didn't really need that at the time. So, yeah, I think a common misconception is that everyone in the military is an, an infantier, so mm. they're war fighting. Yeah. Everyone is trained to do that to a certain level, but mm-hmm. actually it's not what the be-all and end-all, you know, because mm. the military you could do, well, I think there's only two jobs you couldn't do in civilian life that you couldn't do in the military. Can't, I think one of them was a milkman mm-hmm. and one was something else. But everything else you can do from postman all the way up to infantry, you can do every job. So it's a very broad church, the military. Okay. And what would you say is like a unifying theme across all the different roles in the, mili- in the military? What is mm-hmm. the common thread that binds everyone together from so, experience? So one thing they, they do say is everyone's soldier first. So you do everyone learns the, the basic skills. Right. So the drill, the the shooting, 
yeah, everyone in the army, sorry. So everyone in the army, slightly different for the different services. So RAF's a little bit different. The, uh, the Navy's a little bit different. But from the army, your whole basic training is around the pretense of fitness, mm. weapons, mm. and discipline, those sort of things. So right. and lots of values and standards. Um, courage, respect for others, loyalty, integrity, and selfless yeah. commitment, that sort of thing. So, Oh, awesome. And we'll unpack um, some of those values in a bit. But when I started this, this episode, I started by introducing you, as mm-hmm. of course, I haven't spent 13 years in the military and then... <clears throat> 26, 26, 26 years. 26 years, yeah. I saw that on LinkedIn. No, nah, that was... Yeah, okay, it, 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 it's, not, British, it's not as updated. One. It's not updated as much as it could oh, be, okay. but it was 26 so years. 26, that's even double. Okay, so 26 years in the military. Uh, of course, you also... A rugby coach? Uh, yep. So, uh, well, so I've sort of come through. So I, I started off as a rugby player, mm-hmm. then a rugby coach. Now I'm a director of rugby. So I run Bannockburn Rugby Club. Yeah. And you work in the IT firm. And I work and, in the IT um, firm. Yes. And all these things are sort of like labels. But if you were to describe yourself. Right. Um, who is Jimmy? Wow. Well, I mean, what? A, I mean, you should have left that in your, your quick fire five. <laughs> who is Jimmy? That's a super interesting question. I mean, we might come back to this. And maybe I'll just touch on it now. So when I left the military, so I joined the military when I was 16. Well, just just about turned 17. So my whole identity for a long period of time, up until three years ago, was based in the military. So I was always Signaler Samuel, Corporal Samuel, Sergeant Samuel, Captain Samuel, da 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 And when I left the military, I found it really actually quite difficult because I had a bit of an identity crisis. Mm. Um because you've defined yourself so much in a certain way for so long and defined yourself by the rank you wear, the unit you're in, or being in the military, it was really difficult. So if you'd have asked me this question three years ago, I'd have been like that. Mm. Captain Samuel, super easy, right? Traffic officer, whatever it may be. Now, I think my my job probably defines me a little bit. Mm. So I do say I'm a chief of staff, but in the context, you know, who is Jimmy? I think I'm quite a... You know, friendly guy, family man, mm. married with two children and a dog. Um, quite a broad family. I'd like I'd like to think that I'm just like a friendly guy. That's yeah, how I'd like yeah, people to yeah. see me. Yeah. Um, I agree with that, by the way. Thank you very much. <laughs> Not a sailor, but we may maybe come on to that one later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's tough. I don't, I don't think I've got a, a really clear answer. And I think it's something that I've been... Maybe struggling with, maybe struggling might be a bit harsh, but mm. something I've definitely been wrestling with over the last three years, to, uh, that self-identity thing. So, All right. yeah, right. interesting. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll unpack that again um, in, in a bit, but let us maybe go a bit back into even your upbringing and, and childhood. Yeah, yeah. So um, if you could take me back to when you were eight or ten-ish and okay. walk me through your perspectives of life and yeah. what pivotal moments you've had. On to becoming the Jimmy that you know, I'm having a conversation with. Okay. Just now. Well, so eight or ten. So I think maybe take a step back one more. So my dad, Robert, my mum, Gina, they divorced before I can remember, really. I can never remember my parents being together. Mm. But it wasn't a negative thing in my mind. You know, I saw my mum every weekend. She lived around the corner, you know, so the, the relationship was still pretty close. But I think one of the things that probably shaped me around that eight or ten year old was. Although I lived with my dad, which was quite strange in the early 80s. Not many men brought up the kids in a single family. My dad's half Italian, so got quite a big family, four sisters. Yeah, four sisters. So they did a lot of bringing me up. Mm. For example, where we lived, the, I think, next street but one over 
uh, my auntie Franca lived, so she used to pick me up from school. That's where I used to go after school. Uh, being from an Italian family, every Sunday, pretty much, we was around Nonna's house, big, uh, big family meals, all the aunties, all the cousins. So there was always a big family feel mm-hmm. there, and especially around with my aunties. And I always remember being with my aunties. The times I remember being at home with my dad, I suppose, I, I picked up the sense of he worked super hard. Um, and I think that's where my work ethic comes from. I think I'm quite a work, hard worker. You know, I'm a strong believer in you might not be the smartest in the room, but you can work the hardest. Mm. And I definitely get that from my dad and my nan, I think. My nan, old Italian lady, through the war, came to the UK after the Second World War. She told me stories about, I think maybe that's where the military thing comes from. You know, she used to tell us about when she was in the fields in Italy, watching the dogfights overhead and all this sort of stuff. Oh. So, so I think, you know, to answer your question, that age of eight to 10, those formative years, was just before my dad remarried. So I think he remarried when I was about nine or 10. And we, we can speak about that. But in the lead up to that, it was lots of family time, but with my aunties and stuff like that. And I don't think my dad struggled. But you could see how hard he was working, mm. especially reflecting back, right? Um, and then my nan did a lot of the raising. <laughs> In fact, now you say, yeah, you're, you're bringing up the memories now. So my, we used to live about, I don't know, two miles away. Dad didn't learn to drive until I was maybe 13. So everywhere we used to go, I used to be on the crossbar of his bike. So we'd go up this bridge and... I always remember the challenge was to, can you get up the bridge with me on it? So that I would have been about six or seven then as well. So those little, you know, always back to Nan's, going back home, round to Franca's, mm-hmm. you know, all that sort of stuff. So that was, yeah, that's a massive part of my life. I think that, that growing up in that big family, that big family context. Oh yeah. Amazing. Interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. What would you say was the impact of, you know, the family togetherness um, mm-hmm. on your story? So for example, you mentioned having like big meals together. Yeah. How did that impact you as a person then? And, and now that you have the privilege of hindsight to look back on, on, on your journey then? I think it's made me work hard at my marriage. We've been married, I was thinking about this earlier, so I've been married longer than I have it now. So in my time I've been alive, I've been really? married for more of it than I haven't. <laughs> so, I mean, that tells you, so 23 years, me and my wife have been married. Wow. So we got married when we were 20, so we're pretty young. Um, and it's made us work, it's made me work hard. I've not always got it right by any stretch, but you know, I've always tried hard and I've always thought it's maybe, maybe reflecting back. That's where that importance come from to try and keep that family group together yeah. is important because the alternative wasn't so great. Um, <laughs> a little thing, and this, this might seem really strange, but we don't have a, we don't have a dishwasher because we like washing up together oh, wow. because it's the one time you've got everyone in the same place. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So I even do. though you're like, oh, it's a chore, you know, I wash, I always wash, Dot always dries, and Steph always cleans. Cameron, not so much. Cameron just seems to dis... <laughs> Cameron's my oldest boy. He's 23. He just seems to sort of mooch around the house or just seems to disappear at the right time. No, I joke, I joke. He works in hospitality, so he's he's not at home much. But, um, but yeah, those little traditions maybe, mm. maybe that's too strong a word for doing the washing up, but I do like the fact that we all wash up together and we, we tidy up together and... Me and my wife always go to bed together at the same time. We very, very rarely not go up to bed at the same time. You know, to little things like that to make sure you're having those connections every day. Mm. You're just asking, how are you doing? And yeah, I think they're important. I think maybe they come from because we don't have these big family dinners anymore. You just need to take those little micro, little micro services, yeah. you know, to use a bit of an IT phrase. Yeah. So 
yeah, I think those family values definitely carrying forward into now. Life thing, so. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of interesting values. I say interesting a lot, but um, <laughs> I actually do a minute. So, for example, like hard work. And, and you've mentioned how hard work's um, played a big part in your marriage. And I find it fascinating that some of these values or the seeds of these values were even planted back in your childhood. Some of them, certainly. And I think a lot of them in the military. Yes. A lot of them in the military. And that's a perfect segue to talk a bit about the military. So, at what point did the idea of I want to join the military become real to you? So this is something I, I reflected on quite a bit. So I've not, I don't come from a military family. So my uncle was in the engineers, and I think he was parachute trained. Mm. My granddad on my dad's side was in the military. Didn't meet him. He died before I was born. My granddad on my mother's side, she he was in the military too, but didn't really talk about it mm. because it was that generation who fought in the Second World War. They didn't really want to fight in the Second World War. So it, was, it wasn't something I was like, I'm going to be like granddad, I'm going to be like yeah. Uncle Chiro. My dad always was interested. I think there was a couple of things. So I think 1991 was Gulf War One. So I would have been, how old would I have been there? 12, maybe 12 or 13. That was that had quite an impact on me. I remember watching it on the news because uh, it was the first time we really started seeing stuff on the news back mm. then, for, about war fighting anyway. Um, but when I was, when my, my dad moved about five years ago. We was up in the loft and I pulled out a, a notebook from school and I must have been about 10 years old and it said in there I want to be in the army I want, in fact it was very specific I want to be a captain it was in the Royal Marines actually and I ended up a captain in the Royal Signal so not a million miles away <laughs> probably probably didn't have the fitness for the Royal Marines but we'll, 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 we'll scoot past that so I think I think I've always as far as I can remember I've always wanted to be in the army always you know so I don't know where it came from I don't know if maybe there was a subconscious thing from my grandparents maybe seeing things on the news, but may, I think something somewhere has picked up, I, but I couldn't tell you where it where is, it but from, it, it yeah. certainly was a driving factor. So I wasn't a massive academic, this is where working hard, yeah. <laughs> maybe not. Um, but I remember coming up to my exams, I knew yeah. exactly what I needed to join the military and some exams I just didn't turn up for. because so I thought, I don't, I don't need, I can't remember what it was now, design and something else, <laughs> drawing. And I was like, I don't need that. And I just concentrated maths, English and science it was, I needed a certain grade. And, I, that, and that's what I worked hard on. So I think I've always been focused to be in the military. So, right. yeah, I remember going to the careers office. It was very bit different then. You had like an army careers office and going mm -hmm. through with a careers officer. And I was in army cadets. Obviously What's that, that, sorry? So, so army cadets is an organization which runs from, I think, 12 and a half to 18, mm. where it's, you are essentially pseudo army. So... Obviously, you're not in the real army because you're 12 years old, but you wear like a uniform. You can still go shooting. Really? You go camping out and all that sort of stuff. So, okay. yeah. So I think before that, I wanted to join the army, then join the army cadets, which just exacerbated the, the, the requirement. And then being in a group, I suppose, of like-minded individuals, I think when we got to about 15, there was a group of us that all went off to join the military together. Mm. So... It's not quite going off to war together, but we would all wanted to go and join the military. We all joined different parts, but... So I think, yeah, a combination of something planted in my childhood, not sure mm. what, a few influences along the way of Falkland and the Gulf War One, then right. being in army cadets and your friends going off. Gotcha. Off okay. I went. Now, this might sound very cheesy, but <laughs> I'm going to say awesome. Every time I think about, the, about like the military and the army, I think one of the questions that I used to wonder, and I still sometimes wonder when I see all these movies, war and all of that is, there is a high risk of, particularly if you're deployed somewhere, mm. or being involved in a fight or dying, 
Yeah, yeah. Did you ever fear death? So, I think it's a reality, right? So, yeah. I think everyone who joins the military, I, in my opinion, wants to go out and test themselves. So, they want to test themselves in extreme environments, mm. whether that be war fighting. Not everyone ends up getting shot at. Mm. I've been... I've been shot at, I've been, I've had mortars come in and I've dealt with explosion stuff around me. Because if you look at my career profile, I joined the army in 95, then went to Kosovo, then went to Bosnia, then went back to Kosovo, then went to Iraq, then went to Iraq, then went to Iraq, then went to Afghanistan, Afghanistan, Afghanistan. So I was in a period of really high conflict, I suppose, for the British army. Whereas if you join now, you probably won't see, you'll see very little. So did I fear death? I think I feared the impact on my family more. Mm. So the hardest bit about going away to, to war or, or to a conflict is, I think, leaving your family behind. That's where you have the tears. That's where you have the, the sadness because you think there is a reality. And I, I think it doesn't matter what arm or service you're in. There is a reality you might not come back, especially in the Afghan days mm. because there was stuff coming over the wall all the time and the way in which the enemy were fighting there, it was what we called IDF, indirect fire. So it was just firing into the area. So you could just be unlucky, be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and, oh. and that's you done. You know. So the reality is always there. I think you'd be surprised how quick you become desensitised to it. I was in a place called Dogwood with the Black Watch. This was in Iraq in, I think, 2004. So it was at the same time that the US Marines were in Fallujah. That was quite prevalent in the news. So the operation was essentially Fallujah. The Americans were clearing through Fallujah to, to clear the enemy out. And we were the, the backstop. So if they came out, we would catch them on the way out. So there was a, a battalion, I think it was, a battle group. It was a battle group in Dogwood. So in the middle of, basically in the middle of the desert, there was a few little built buildings. And I would say pretty much every day that you'd get rocketed. So not mortars, so, you know, big, big rockets would come in. So day one, boom, helmet on, body armor on. Right, okay. Alarm goes off, right, we're safe. Okay. Day two, same again. By about day four or five, you won't even get out of bed. Really? You just pull your body armor on, pull your hair <laughs> on, like, if it hits me, it hits me. It's too early in the morning. So you, you come desensitized very quickly. Mm. And, you've, and you're, you're very well trained. Mm. You know, you've spent a long time. So it's, you don't go from just being in the barracks back in eaten or wherever to going out there's a there's a quite a significant build-up period and in fact in afghanistan days it was pretty much six months build-up just training before you go out the door so by the time you get there you're you're very well drilled uh, and you knew what you're doing and now there's a very different story i think if he was an infantry. so my brother was in the grenadier guards they were out on foot patrols so very different the likelihood or the statistics of getting hurt out there significantly higher Whoa. than someone like me who sat in Camp Bastion, which was a pretty well-protected place. So it was relative. Um, but to answer your question, did I fear it? No, I, I don't think I did because I think you just wouldn't do anything. You would never go out there and do it because yeah. it, was, it, it was dangerous. But you always had a healthy respect of, let's not do something stupid here. Right. In fact, having kids changes your, your mindset a lot. Also, Well, so up until... So we had children quite early till 20 mm -hmm. and up till that point, not bothered what you do because it's just you. That's all you have to care about. If you go and jump out of a plane and you break your legs and uh, well, whatever. And all of a sudden we had Cameron back in 2000 and it does make you think, 
hang on a minute, this this person's dependent on me. So I, I need to be more careful. So that certainly was a mind shift. Uh, and a good example was when I was in Kosovo. So me and my wife sort of met when we were in Kosovo, weirdly. And it was a very different operation. Um, I was much more blasé. I would go and do things that were probably a little bit too risky, which I shouldn't have done looking back. And then when I went out to, and I went to Bosnia as well, but then when I went out to Iraq, different conflict, but I was a lot more conscious of what I was doing because all of a sudden I had these dependents, these people that relied on me. So if I, I did get killed, you know, who looks after these? Yeah. Now, Steph could absolutely look after herself and the kids without me. In fact, sometimes I get in the way. <laughs> but <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, actually, you, you do become much more acutely aware of, it's not just about you. You can't just care about you anymore. So you have to think about that a little bit more. And yeah, there were certainly things I went to do and it, the decision was weighted differently because of having children and stuff. Right. Okay. So many questions there. <laughs> but we've got an hour on this one. You mentioned earlier about um, many people joining the military because they wanted something to challenge them, mm. to grow and stretch them beyond what, what, what they were used to. How did the military stretch you? How did it challenge you? How did it impact on you as a person? Ooh, well, there was two adverts when I was when I was young in the early 90s, which, by the way, is awful to say in the early 90s because it feels like a lifetime ago and I don't feel that old, right? But And then and I was thinking people in the 90s were saying this about kids in the 60s and I was like, that's that's really sad. Anyway, anyway, so the one advert was, was a young guy and he said, I, I joined the army to get the challenge I couldn't find in civilian life. That was one. And then there was a guy, I forget his name now, and it was like, where's Bob or something like that? Where's Bob? And he was always walking on a beach, always playing sport. It was doing loads of cool stuff. So the challenge and the way it changed me is, one, it gives you a set of values and standards. And I'll see if I can rattle them off now. So solid C, so selfless commitment, respect for others, loyalty, integrity, discipline, and courage, moral and physical. So one thing it stretched you is you don't really carry values and standards around with you as a civilian, right? You just try and be a good guy mm. or a good person. In the military, they're, they're, they're hammered into you quite hard, you know. Why do you have to have selfless commitment? Well, because you've got to do, you've got to make sure that Samuel's all right. So before I'm all right, I've got to make sure Samuel's all right. If you've eaten, yep. And you carry those little things through. And when I became an officer, they became even more heightened. So I went through Sandhurst and you talk about serve to lead. So you make sure your men are okay before you sort yourself out. Whoa. So your men, your weapon, and then yourself. So that sort of selfless commitment. And really, you probably wouldn't do that in civilian life. Mm. You know, it's not really. And in the corporate sector at the moment, actually, you think there's a lot of people that look after themselves yeah. first, right? Before even thinking about, especially this time of year and people coming to their end of year. Um, so it's very different. Respect for others. I mean, the whole premise of the military is respect for others. You know, I think a lot of the time, going back to your previous question about the perceptions people have of the military, it's all war fighting. The reason you're doing it is to help people that can't help themselves. Mm. So, so it's all about respect for others. How can you help those that can't help themselves? And again, that's something, why would I put myself in danger exactly. for someone else? You know, integrity, always a tough one, but sometimes you've just got to go, I've done wrong here and, and being owning up to your mistakes. Loyalty is a huge one, I think, in the military. They are, people are sometimes loyal to a fault as well because you're so passionate about the unit you're in and the team you're in. And you have these bonding experiences. And basic training is one of those because they put you through such... <laughs> you get your head shaved as soon as you go in. So in the 90s, obviously everyone had curtains. Even I had curtains. And I know that's hard to believe, Samuel. 
Uh, there, really? used be, there, used be a, there used to be some fine locks on this head of mine. Um, but, you know, for day one, zip, all, all of it comes off. You still have pictures? Of, of I, I did, I'll show you them after. They yeah, are awful. I would want awful. to see them. They are awful. <laughs> it was a roll neck with a jumper over the top and cur- yeah, it was awful. So you go to uh, PT, physical training, and everyone would be training. And it was hard work, right? Hard work. And then all of a sudden, the, the PTI, the physical training structure, would be like, right, that's it. No one's working hard enough. And you just get like hammered, you know, press up after press up after run after lift this up. And and you was absolutely exhausted out on your feet. But those experiences bring you together, make you loyal to each other because you think me and Samuel been through that. Mm. And it forms them, them, them bonds, you know. Um, discipline. I mean, discipline's massive in the military. And that's probably one of the biggest thing it takes you through. That self-discipline to get up, make your bed in the morning, yeah. make sure you, you're well presented, make sure you, your stuff's ironed, um, just making sure you do your job. And I think that's something we carry well, and that's why we, we, we're having success with veterans in corporate world, because of the discipline we bring with us, that self-discipline and, and discipline around the, the work we do. And then the courage. And the courage maybe is something you really don't see. I think some of those other values you probably could see. We have got people who've got respect for others, clearly. We've got people who've got selfless commitment that do things for other people. But the courage one is physical and moral. So moral to do the right thing. And there's lots of people that do the right thing. But maybe the physical one is the one that's so alien to everything else because, you know, would you really put yourself in physical danger for someone else? Don't know. But you have to do that quite a lot in the military. Mm. So, yeah, so those values and standards shaped changed really changed me who I was this little boy that stood on a platform in Bedford saying goodbye to his mum and his dad and his girlfriend to what I am today a million miles away a million miles apart and I do think I still carry those values and standards and I think there'll be some military people here and they'll think I'm pretty impressed he's still knocked out solid C so I'll be quite happy with that um but yeah I mean they do stick with you they shape you um and like I said, I think people carry those. I think they call them anchor skills now. They'll call, they'll they'll pull them through into yeah. into their civilian life. So yeah, it's, I, I loved it. I loved the military. I left at the right time. A lot of people leave when they're bitter, but I actually think it helped me so much in my life, and hopefully, it'll, you know, take me forward. Yeah. What made it the right time when you left? So I had about I think I had about ten years of a career left if I wanted it. So the, the normal military career is 22 years, and which takes you from private to whatever rank. So I was fortunate enough, and going back, I think, pulling that hard work ethos from my parents. Like I said, I wasn't the brightest guy in the world, but I was always the hardest worker. That took me through, and I promoted above my peers in most cases. And I got to an opportunity where I was offered the opportunity to go and commission, so to become a commissioned officer. So for a big part, I was a soldier. And then I was opportunity to go and be an officer. So I went to Sandhurst, retrained, and I became a, a captain. When you transfer to become an officer, you have a, a second career almost. So where you'd normally leave at 40 years old, um, I think you can then serve up to, I think it was 65, I think. Mm. I went and did a great job in Nuneaton where I was a traffic officer, which is a bit of an old term because it used to be the people that monitored the traffic going over the network actually what it was was more in the, in the security domain and the the network management right. domain loved that again it was a um, busy time we sent people over the into uh british virgin islands during the hurricane season in mm. 2016 i think 15 16 so we was deploying people all over the world i love that job 
Then we came to Scotland. Me, Stephanie and the kids, we came up to Scotland. And the reason for that was Stephanie, Stephanie was born up in Govan. Sounds about as Scottish as I do. <laughs> but, you know, she was born up here and she, and we always used to holiday up here every, about once a year we'd come up. Um, I, but I never thought I'd live in Scotland. But Steph was like, look, I followed you around the world. So bearing in mind by this point, this was 2018, I think. Yeah, 2018. We'd lived in 10, 11 different houses. Whoa. So we'd lived in Germany twice, Cyprus, Wales, north of England, south of England. I'd been on X amount of operational tours, you know, so we were tired. Um, still loved it. So I said, you know what, Steph? Absolutely. Let's go to Scotland. So I found this this role up in Scotland, what was called 51 Brigade in Stirling. We got here and we was like, why do we not live it all the time? And I didn't realise what a gem Scotland was until I got here. You know, to me, Scotland was Rabsy Nesbit and train spotting. <laughs> You know, and I was like, I don't want to live there. But actually, when you're here, and you'll know this, yeah. you get in, you're like, the people are amazing. Yeah. The place is amazing. It's not super busy, but it's not super quiet. You can be in the mountains in, you know, an hour. You can be in some big, really nice cities full of history in half an hour. And so I think we made the decision then that this is going to be us. So I was about to be promoted to major and go on a course, um, which was interim staff leadership college or something like that mm. and I made a decision I thought and then I was going to be posted to Bristol and I think then for us we was like you know what we like it here we're settled the kids are settled and what I always wanted to do uh, home to me was always a safe base to go and have adventures from so that was what Steph always provided me and why I think our marriage works so well is one she puts up with me and I still don't know how she puts up to me to this day the amount of craziness I was like yeah, I'm just going to Iraq. I, I, I remember telling you I was going to Iraq the day before I was going to Iraq. Whoa. I got a phone call saying, you've got to go. <laughs> and shit, we had, how old was Sydney? Sydney must have been like months old, like six months old. And I was like, I've got to go. And that was it. Next day, kick pack, come, come. Oh, wow. That's you such know. a great understanding. I mean, and, and she, she was amazing. So and she always provided me that safe base to go and have mm. adventures. And I had loads of adventures. I did some cool stuff. But then as I saw, I looked around and I saw my children. So Cameron was about 18 at this time and Sydney was a bit younger, 14. I thought, that's what I want for them, to give them a safe base to have adventures. Yeah. I don't want them to have to go, where do you live now? Yeah. Oh, right, you live in Germany now. <laughs> so, um, so I said, what we'll do? So, and, and we made a decision. We, so we bought a house. Um, I left the army. I went through the military transition program into JP mm. Morgan. And um, yeah, and it was the probably, well, Three years later, I think it was probably one of the best decisions I made. I, I left the army on good terms. Yeah. Like I say, I wasn't bitter or twisted or, you know, oh, I've been overlooked for promotion. It was like yeah. right time to go. And it's been, the transition's been super smooth. I had the wobbles, like we spoke about that, that identity thing. And I think that's something I maybe I still do struggle with a little bit. But um, yeah, it was definitely the right time to go. And now my, my son's going off having adventures. He was off to America last year. He's just come oh, back wow. from France. My daughter's, you know, up and down to university. Yeah. My wife's got a job. So... I mean, at the time, you like like everything, right? You like, is this the right move? Mm. You know, you got to take a bit of a punt. Yeah. But looking back, you're like, yeah, absolutely, it's the right move. Oh wow, oh wow. <laughs> Something that you said that struck me as we're talking about the military, because we're slowly transitioning into conversations on reflections in your life and lessons that you've learned from your life and your marriage as well, um, was you wanted this challenge that, you know, will stretch you. And it mm. did. But maybe at the time, you, you weren't quite um, aware of how stretched you would be until you had been through that process. Is that safe to say? 100%. 100%. Did, did you have times where you were like, 
it was too much. You, you almost quit. And then you, you got stretched past the moment and you thought, oh, this is possible. I could, I could do this. Yeah. Do you ever have that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the training is designed to do that anyway. So I think from a physical perspective, we used to do this thing called adventure training. Mm -hmm. And that is basically doing stretching yourself in, in a safe environment. So you do things like, you know, like potholing when you go into the cave systems under the ground. That was the most awful experience of my life. We did it in North, West, uh, North Yorkshire, freezing cold, soaking wet. And I was like, this is miserable, but it got you to push you past that. So from a physical perspective, I think the army does that a lot. And the military does that a lot. They push you out of your comfort zone with regards to the physical training side of it, mm. the adventure training side of it, jumping out of an airplane. That's uncomfortable because everything in your body is saying, do not jump out of this plane, yeah. you know, and, it, and then you're gone. And it's great. And you go, oh, let's do it again. All right. um, so that helps you grow. I think from a mental side, I think the operational tours and the exercises I did, they've, they give you so much. One, they make you understand the world a little bit better, but they do push you outside your comfort zone from a, like an unconscious bias perspective, maybe the best way of doing it, uh, or a growth mindset. My growth mindset is probably a better mm. way. So when I went to the Congo, it was the only time I think that I understood what it is, what, what racism is about. Because it's the only time I was the only person that looked like me. And I was like, this is really, and then, you know, when the, you just go, I get it, what it's like to be a yeah, black guy in a exactly. white city, you know? And I'm like, because, you know, it, no one else looked like me. Yeah. No one else talked like me. And then ingratiating myself into that culture, working with the Congolese army, speaking to them. And actually, you realize, well, one thing I've taken away from all my tours where I was in Bogota, Colombia, Democratic Republic of Congo, Afghanistan in the desert, in, you know, an old village. Everyone's the same. Mm. Pretty much everyone's the same. Everyone wants to have a bit of security so they feel safe. They want to raise their kids and they want to have a bit of money in their pocket so they can have a bit of nice stuff, mm. which is relative, right? So nice stuff in London is, well, you can buy a pint of beer. <laughs> I was down there last week, they had 12 quid for two pints. Ridiculous. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so yeah, so relative there to being in Afghanistan where mm. you want a bit of food for, yeah. for the children. So yeah, being in the Congo, there was a couple of things. The Congo for me was probably a bit of a life-affirming, life-changing moment. So one, there was that almost epiphany going, right, I, I, I get it now. I understand to a certain extent as much, you know, as, much as any white guy can understand. Um, two, realise that everyone's pretty much the same. You know, everyone's just learning. Everyone's just on a path to do that. And then the other thing that was really profound to me is when I was out there, I worked with a charity called Stand Proud. So in the Congo, it's one of the only places on earth where polio still exists. Mm. And these kids, all the way up to adults, and I think 18, they uh, it affect your legs, polio. And so they build the So the older kids who have gone through the system, they build the braces for the, for the younger kids' legs. And just getting all those children in, and we did like a little sports day for them. We did some like press-ups oh. and did some stuff like that, you think? And we gave them, I remember we went out and bought the uh, cans of pop. Now, to any kid in, in sort of the Western world, we had, there's basically two versions of pop. There's one that was full of malt, and there was one that was like fizzy pop. Now, in the Western world, all the kids were took the fizzy pop. In the Congo, they all took the malt one because they understood how good it was for them. Mm. So it was those sort of times that, talking about stretching myself, it made me grow it gave me that growth mindset to think one everyone's the same but two you know it people are very resilient and some people get dealt a really poor hand 
but the human nature will push you past that. And you just got over, you just sometimes got to get over yourself, get over your biases and just accept people who they are. Have a yeah. conversation with people and think, you're just the same as me, aren't you? Exactly. You know, and understand you can make little differences to people in their life as well. You know, just spending, what was it, half a day with these kids? Yeah. You know, and they, they remember that forever. Exactly. I'd like to think so. And we made some really good friends over there. So, yeah, the, the Democratic Republic of Congo was a real life-changing moment and really, I think it helped me grow up a little bit. Right. Yeah, I think I grew up a little bit, a lot out there. Okay. And transitioning into civilian life. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the identity crisis there. <laughs> wow. Where do we start with that? Yeah. I'm, I'm wrapped that one. <laughs> ah. um, could you walk me through the perspective from your mm. lens of you've spent 26 years in the army, you saw Bill's identity yeah. um, in the army, and all of a sudden you're out, yeah. so starting in a sense from scratch in a different world. How did you experience that? So, yeah, like I said, I joined when I was 16, served 26 years, met my wife in the army. We lived in an army barracks. The first time I met my wife, she was we was in barracks. So rewind back, this was in 1998. So a regiment of 600 people, I think there was probably 10 women. So very, very few women. She was one of the early trailblazers of women in the military. And um, the first sort of, I'm not going to say date, because it wasn't a date, but the first time we sort of really spoke was living in a hole in the ground. So, <laughs> so that's starting that to give you some context in sort of my, my mindset. Um, and everything we've done, or everything we did, sorry, from you know all those years, for those 23 years of our marriage together, was loosely based around, 20 years of marriage was around the army. So we lived in military houses. We had our children in the military. Um, we went to military events. All our friends were military. Mm. And then all of a sudden, one day you leave the army and what, in fact, one thing Steph always said to me, she goes, in the army, you're somebody. Because it doesn't matter who you are. You're always captain, mm. corporal, sergeant, ex, you know, and you serve a purpose. And going back to when I was at school with Cameron, all those kids, wow, you're in uniform. That's, you know, it's amazing. And all of a sudden you're just another guy in a shirt. And I really struggled, really struggled in those first couple of weeks. Went through, I mean, without being too dramatic, you know, I, I think you go through the, the, almost through the stages of grief, through that loss period, you know, I got angry, absolutely. Now, giving insight, I'm not a very angry person. The extent of my anger was throwing a cheeseburger at the wall. So <laughs> it's not terrible, but for me, that was like, oh, good Lord. So, you know, that was, was my angry phase. But I, I mean, I was really angry. And then, yeah, a bit, I wouldn't say depression because I'd undermine people who have got depression, but mm. really low bouts where I drive off and go and sit by myself. Um, I would have the fear, I'm going to get a job. Mm. I'm gonna get, so if I, when I look back and reflect on it, it's almost like them seven stages of grief you go through in various, various ways. But there was a couple of things that really helped me through it. So one, having a family, mm. having a really tight-knit family. And again, back to, back to my parents and uh, my family. I think having that was, was massive. And Steph, again, she don't get enough credit, but absolutely looked after me. She's always been very good at keeping my feet on the ground. So like when I threw the burger, she's like, what are you doing that for? It's just wasting a burger. Don't waste a burger. It's like, oh, I love that. <laughs> you know, and she gave me the time and she gave me space to, to process it. And then when it was too much, she was like, right, just stop it. Mm. You know, you're fine. But you've got a house. So we had a roof over our head. So we'd already planned that out. Um, we had friends. So 
one of the things I think people sometimes get wrong in the military is you, because you invest so much time and it's a vocation, all your friends are in the military. What I had done is while I was leaving, and this wasn't intentional, is I joined the rugby club. So this is where mm. Bannockburn and now, now the director there. And someone asked me the other day, we stood in the food hut. Samuel, the last few years have been, you know, it's, it's a hard work to try and grow a rugby club and you're trying to help volunteers and you're trying to keep everyone happy and this issue happens here and you've got to deal with it and you've got this. And the world's complex now and mm. people are quite complex. And she went, why'd you do this? And I said, because when I left the military, I was in a low place and this, this team of people, and they're not all still there, but this group of people helped me, gave me purpose mm. and then they would, they wrapped their arms around me and said, yeah, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. And it, that gave me my my network, my my second family and all yeah. that. So that's why that really helped. And that was what I said to her. So, yeah, so when I left the military, that, that identity crisis, that processing of grief, loss, whatever it is, um, was super tough. And you do... You know, you, there's little things you still pick. I mean, you know, I still walk around with the, the army day sack on. So there's little things you can't really let go. And, yeah. you know, I've still got my berry in my belt. And I, I, know, I think most military people have still got little bits. And you still hark back to it. And you still think, God, it was good, wasn't it? Mm. You know, it was good. And there's little bits that you miss, which will never be the same. The way you talk to people, the way you react to people, the humour, that, that camaraderie, mm. that stuff you probably would never get in a corporate environment or any yeah. environment, really, because... When you're ever going to be in an environment where you're in a helicopter and you're, you're smashing through a valley and, you know, things are flying over your head, you're never going to be there. So yeah. that identity, that change of identity was super tough in the early days. Um, that probably lasted a couple of months, I would say, until I really found where I was. And you, you have these bouts of doing... So I started playing rugby again. You know, I was like 42 and I broke my leg and I was like, time to give this stuff up. <laughs> I think as I'm progressing more and more, I feel myself, I feel that now I've, I'm leaving that behind. Mm. I've accepted I'm not a military guy anymore or ex-military. Sorry, I'll always be ex-military. I'll always be a veteran. I find now that I can do better now with helping other guys and girls coming out of the military. That's yeah. why I do the vet stuff at work, you know, is say, right, I know how hard it can be. So let me help the next guy. I see. And then that gives you, uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's your way of dealing with it and coping with it as well. So there's like an old proverb. You go past and there's a guy stuck in a ditch and one person says, oh, I can tell you how to get out of that and then walks off. And one person says, oh, let me go and get someone to help you get out of that. And then the soldier just jumps in and he's like, what are you doing? Mm. He goes, well, I've been here before, so yeah. we can get out of here together. And I think that, yeah. that mentality for me, so it's getting better. It's getting easier. Yeah. I don't think it ever goes away. Um, but... I think I'm starting to find my new identity. Can't tell you exactly what it is, but I, I feel yeah. I, I feel it's coming. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame that we haven't like wrap up this because I I still have a, uh, many more questions. Jimmy, would you come on this podcast again? I'd love to have a conversation. Okay, fantastic. So <laughs> we'll, we'll need to do this. We'll need to do this again because we've got just a few minutes. But this is the final part of the podcast, which, okay. which is more reflective. Um, and so I have. Three questions, just three questions here, and 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 we're done. Um, almost like rapid fire style, but feel free to take a few seconds to think about that. Sure. What are you most grateful for as you look back on your life? I think, as cheesy as it may sound, I think I'm most grateful for Steph, for my missus. She has put up an awful lot in life. I like to think of myself quite a nice person. I think I am, 
but I can be super high and I can go super low as well. You know, mm. I don't think I'm bipolar or anything like that, but I'm certainly, I certainly have those tendencies where I can have real high highs and real low troughs. And I've gone off and done, like I say, I think we worked out when I was still in the army of the, the 20 years I was in, I think at least five years I'd been away, which is an mm. ignored amount of time. Steph was, as I've got older and I've looked back, she was always at home with the children. Mm. So when you said about, do you worry about getting killed or being, or death? Actually, it's much more acute for the people staying at home because mm. you're out there, you're just dealing with it where they don't know. So there's the stuff that Steph had to deal with and always supported me and has always been there. I think she is the person to support everything she's done. Is, that's probably what I'm most grateful, I think. Awesome. And perfect segue into the second question. So for Steph, your kids, people who have been a big pillar of support for you as a mm -hmm. person in your life. Um, if you could like write, you know, in notes, like a childhood notes today, you know how you do all these childhood notes on radio stations and stuff. <laughs> yeah. What would you say to Steph and other people in your life that have been such a big pillar? Um, Wow, I mean, yeah. Will she listen to it? She probably will listen to it. Um, I, I would just say thank you to her. Um, I don't think I tell her enough. I tell her I love her a lot. I don't think I say enough. I don't think I say thank you for supporting me for everything, especially thank you for, for the hard time, especially when I mm. like, transition out of the military. Super hard time. Um, and everything she does for me. You know, she's, she's absolutely rock solid. So I think I'd just say thank you. Mm. To my parents... Again, you know, they, they always tried their best. Again, it, again, it's thank you to them. Um, and then to the kids, go and have adventures. Mm. You know, the, the world is so small, you know, and you see so many people and they just, they don't leave their village, their town, yeah. their city, and you like, go out there, see, because it makes you such a more well-rounded person. It makes you appreciate the world more. You know, it makes you realise Everyone's pretty cool, exactly. you know, and the world's not a bad place as it gets portrayed on the news every single day. Yeah. You know, actually, everyone's out there. Pretty cool guys. So, yeah, I'd say thank you to a lot of people that I probably don't say thank you to, uh, how much I appreciate them. And then, yeah, to the kids, you know, go out there, man. Go and see the go world. and smash it. Cool. Final question. Question we ask to all our guests. This okay. is the one unifying question you find on every series of Shippers podcast. Um, as you look back on your life's journey and, and stories and background, if your life was a book, Mm -hmm. What would its title be? Oh, that's a tough one. What would its title be? Oh man, that's tough. Uh, what would I, well, I think I'd like it to be. <laughs> I think I'd like it to be the stories that shape us, but that would be <laughs> just, just ripping off the podcast here. Um, so I think growth has been really important in my life. I think that's that's one thing I I'm most proud of is how much I've grown as a person. Yeah, maybe just growth. Growth. Growth, yeah. Growth. I have to have got time for one more question. Okay, like, cool. I think we've got, <laughs> got three or four minutes left. Um, for our audience, people listening right now, mm -hmm. what is something that you would like to tell them that maybe I've not had the opportunity to ask a question on or we've not touched, but you think people need to hear this more? So this is your chance to think about any any subject matter or, what, or anything at all and just talk to Talk to everyone listening right now. Yeah. So I think I think it'd probably be the same advice that I'd give to my children is go out and see the world. You know, I've been super fortunate in my life that I've, I think at last count, it was 43 countries across five continents. So I've been across North America, South America, Europe, 
Asia, Australia, Singapore, you know, all around the world. And again, I know I keep coming back to this, but meeting those different people from those different cultures, everyone is pretty much the same. We are, we're all human. We all have our same, we all have fears, no matter what people tell you. We all have our doubts. Most of us have self-doubts. Most of us have imposter syndrome. My advice would be go out there and see the world. It's an amazing place Mm. full of amazing people. Um, And I think too much we let what comes out of the little square boxes in front of us shape us. But actually, if you go out there and (laughs) plug it, go learn their stories. It's amazing what you can find out and how much you'll have in common with some person you can barely speak with in the same language, but you'll have so much in common with them. So, yeah, go, go out there and see the world. That would be my... If, if I'd say one thing on my deathbed, go and see the world. That's what <laughs> I'd say. Go and see it. It's Thanks, awesome. Jeremy. Yeah, and, and it's, it ties into something I've been thinking about a lot that um, one of like the um, role models of them, I put it that way in the black community recently said, says we're one humanity, nothing more, nothing less. That's it. Th- that's it. And Jimmy, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, hearing your story has been very inspiring. In fact, we have to do on that one uh, at some point. I'll, I'll, I'll message you I'll message about that. But thank you so much for sharing your story. And your story makes me appreciate, once again, the tremendous sacrifice folks in the military make on behalf of, 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 of us. So thank on behalf of all the listeners of Stories <laughs> That Shape Us, thanks, Jimmy, and thanks to every single person in the army, in the military, working so hard, sacrificing their you know lives and... Um, putting a lot of efforts into ensuring we all are safe. Like we truly, truly, truly appreciate you. Thank you very much for that. And f- folks, if you don't send a thank you note as well, please feel free to, I, I will pass them on to Jimmy because this has been a very inspiring um, show. But we are at the end of this episode. If you haven't subscribed, subscribe and, li- and leave a comment and like and share this with people as well. Um, but until next time, thank you very much, Jimmy. Cheers, it's pal. been an, an honor having this chat with you and hope you know, you have an exciting time, you know, fully transitioning and and my love and regards to your family as well. Thank you. Thank okay. you so much and have a good everyone. Bye.